0: Oh my God, we have an exciting new client, Literati. Oh! It's the number one book club for kids. Oh yeah. I had to do some digging to find people young enough, but my ex just had a baby. My nephew's. Three and seven years old. (laughs) Perfect. We we sent it to both of them. We're going to get reviews. It is for ages zero to 12. Yeah. Right? And uh, libraries, schools, bookstores are all closed. Yeah. Right? Literati has you covered with something truly unique. This subscription book club for kids was founded by two women to make it easy to find interesting books delivered right to your doorstep. No more scrolling online trying to find that perfect book for your child or to give as a gift. Each Literati box contains five books based on a theme with exclusive original art personalized note to your child. What kid doesn't love receiving something in the mail? Home delivery, super important right now. And with their curated selection, only keep your favorites. Send the rest back for free for a limited time. Try it with Travis's nephews. Go to literati.com slash Stephanie for 25% off your first two orders. This is their best offer available anywhere. Go to literati.com slash Stephanie, 25% off your first two orders. That's literati.com slash Stephanie. Terms and conditions apply.
1: By the way, I like when people who are blaming this whole epidemic on a lack of regulation uh, in Chinese wet markets call for no regulation over here. Let's begin. to the Sanity Cast. I am John Fugel saying this is the helpful little podcast from Stephanie Miller's Sexy Liberal Podcast Network that's all about how to maintain your sanity at a time when the Christians have elected Caligula, when a reality TV show personality is not a leader, not a CEO, not a Christian, not anti-war, not a patriot, not winning, not exonerated, not a stable genius, not a good negotiator, not a wartime president, not credible during a plague not ever gonna sound which is place in history, most likely not a billionaire, reveals that he's also not a freaking doctor. At this point, after injecting disinfectants, I'm ready to have a PSA to warn all Trump supporters not to eat paste. It's a pleasure to be here. Yes, I am still wearing last night's pajamas all day, but I do change into clean pajamas before I fall asleep tonight because I'm modeling good behaviors. For my child, uh, this week uh, the world has hit three million confirmed cases. The world has hit two hundred thousand deaths. The U.S. has hit one million cases, and at the time of this recording, the death toll in the United States has surpassed the death toll of Americans in the Vietnam War. Something else. Donald Trump avoided. Um, b- before we begin, a big happy birthday to uh, Melania Trump, because, you know, really, after spreading a racist slur about Obama not being born here and plagiarizing Michelle Obama's speeches and working in America without a permit, uh, lying about your college degree and Einstein grant, and of course, bringing your parents over here through chain migration while your husband is promising to end chain migration, Melania, you have earned every piece of happiness you've got. And as far as Donald Trump, uh, Melania's night, Melania's birthday has made his worst nightmare come true. Uh, He is now married to a woman in her 50s. Raise a glass. So this week's episode is dedicated to everybody who finally dumped Trump because he suggested that COVID-19 might be treatable by injecting disinfectants or using UV light. I'm not sure how the UV light works. I heard about that. And I'm like, this is in your lungs. I spent all weekend trying to snort a clean phone pro just to get it down there. It didn't didn't work. Um, But congratulations, folks. I try not to be smug when people wake from the Trump matrix and come back to reality. So congratulations, because I know that looking into eclipses uh, didn't sway you and grab them by the pussy and changing a weather map with a Sharpie to make it look like Alabama's getting a hurricane. That, that, Scientific outlook wasn't a problem. Nuking hurricanes, ripping off people with his charity, ripping off people through his online university, uh, trying to buy Greenland, stealing migrant children with no plan or system to ever give them back, uh, firing the people investigating him, talking about alligators and moats around a border wall, uh, telling people that work for him to ignore lawful subpoenas, defending white supremacists, not knowing how apostrophes work, getting impeached for trying to bribe a foreign leader into smearing Joe Biden. I'm 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 glad you guys finally found your line, injecting disinfectants. Um, My only question is, did y'all watch Star Wars and then Empire Strikes Back and then Return of the Jedi and halfway through Return of the Jedi? Was that when you realized Darth Vader wasn't really a good guy? Well, we've now surpassed a million cases, as I said, of COVID-19 in the US. One third of the cases worldwide. Uh, Our death toll is above that of the Vietnam War. 137,000 Americans who had the virus have recovered. 40 people have now tested positive for coronavirus in Wisconsin due to the primary vote. Congratulations, Trump, the Republican Party, you've literally made democracy dangerous for our health. Um, I know that was always the goal. And uh, despite the climbing death toll, the White House just announced, um, go back to work and uh, the Coronavirus Task Force is gonna scale back their meetings. What were they contributing anyway? In the next couple of days we're gonna see the next wave of states preparing to reopen, despite the lack of tests available, and despite the fact that in many of these states, the death toll is still climbing. It's kind of awkward realizing that your governor cares more about money and kissing Donald Trump's large, gelatinous, fleshy spray tan behind than the lives of the people who elected them. But Georgia, Texas, Ohio, Oklahoma, Alaska, South Carolina, Colorado, Mississippi, Minnesota, Montana, forging ahead against multiple warnings. I hope you're right. I hope we're all proven wrong. My greatest fantasy is that Donald Trump takes a, takes a victory lap over this and that no one else dies, and it doesn't get worse. Tennessee is about to reopen, even though they just had the highest one-day increase in deaths so far, and, and authorities are saying increasing human interaction and, and, and economic activity now, without the means to do so safely, is only going to backfire. How are all these businesses going to test employees? How's an employee going to feel safe going to their job? How's someone going to enter a restaurant and feel comfortable talking to a waiter, uh, getting food on a plate with cutlery and a glass from a kitchen they can't see? I mean, people are still urging social distancing. And in California, thousands of people are on the beaches. And I don't know if you saw the pictures... A lot of them aren't wearing face masks, so that's great, and hopefully it's a sign of things to come, and I know I'm biased. We're we're broadcasting this from the epicenter. I'm in New York City, so if it's getting better out there, then I'm thrilled. It means it's getting better elsewhere, but at this point, uh, nearly 50% of the residents of Detroit say they will be completely broke within the next three months, but... If they all go out to work before it's safe, a lot of that 50% could find themselves completely dead within the next three months. And as of now, restaurants in Georgia are, uh, are reopened, um, offering a set of guidelines set out by state officials to maximize money. Did I say money? I meant safety. Safety. Um, you know, at this point, uh, the chairman of Tyson Foods warned that the U.S. food supply chain is breaking because factory and processing plant closures are creating a shortage of meat products. Wouldn't that be the greatest irony of all of this for the carnivores? I mean, unsafe plants are gonna force meat eaters to have to eat safe plants. You know, Spain is right behind America as the nation with the second highest count. Switzerland is going to allow some businesses to reopen this week. Uh, Italy plans to loosen some measures uh, May 4th. Germany, they're going a bit slower and they've warned citizens they can be fined up to 5,000 marks for not wearing a mask in public. Uh, in Paraguay and other South American countries, they're learning from the failures of us and they're keeping the restrictions in place a bit longer. Russia, warned that there is no timeline in place for making it through the pandemic. Uh, I don't know what's scarier, the pandemic or the fact that we can believe something the Russian government said. Uh, And New Zealand, by the way, due to stable leadership and swift action and massive testing at the start of the outbreak, they've announced that they have essentially eliminated the entire virus. No new cases. I mean, only new cases in single digits last week. Meanwhile, in Guatemala, they're saying that 20 percent of the country's coronavirus patients are people who are actually deported from the U.S. So, again, we're exporting this, man. We don't need a ban on immigrants coming in. We need a ban on immigrants going out. The CDC estimates that over 9000 healthcare workers nationwide have been infected with coronavirus in the course of their work. Where are the tests? Uh Now a brief tribute to Diamond and Silk. (laughs) Diamond and Silk, of course, got fired from their job on Fox's uh, web channel this week. Um, And it's interesting seeing a lot of folks say, well, this is racist. I mean, you know, they got fired for promoting disinformation about Corona. But like Sean Hannity pushes these same lies and Tucker Carlson, Laura Ingram. How come they're not fired? Well, uh, it's made a lot of people say it's racist. Only liberals, conservatives don't care. And I'll get to why. Um, I'm afraid liberals, you're wrong about this. They didn't fire Diamond and Silk because of racism. They hired Diamond and Silk because of racism they had to have some black best friends to show off uh keep in mind diamond and silk i mean they're they're sort of like uh, frangela uh as an african american female comedy duo if frangela was never funny uh never clever only said stupid shit and ran cover for racists that's how they're like frangela um you know, they're there for the reason Herman Cain had to be on the stage in 2014, uh, 2012. But they're there for the reason that uh, Ben Carson had to be on stage in 2016. They're there for the line, what, me racist? Y- you know, think about it. I mean, yeah, I get it. You're upset. They were fired. But Hannity and others pushed junk about this. Why weren't they fired? They didn't fire Diamond and Silk for pushing disinformation about coronavirus. Rupert and Lachlan Murdoch don't care about that. You know why they fired him? They fired Trish Reagan because she embarrassed them, not because she actually, you know, said anything wrong. She was a sacrificial scam. Trish Reagan had a tacky headline, you know, Dems Coronavirus Hoax, and they, they had to cut her loose for that to make it seem like they cared. They didn't actually fire Diamond and Silk for spreading disinformation. They canceled them because nobody actually watches their show. There's no ratings, they can't sell ad time. See, Trumpland needs a Diamond and Silk, but they're not gonna actually voluntarily spend time with them. They wanna have a Diamond and Silk to point to and say, well, we're not racist, look, because you know they're racist. But they don't actually like Diamond and Silk. They're not gonna pay to see Diamond and Silk live. They don't have an act. They're not gonna sit down and watch Diamond and Silk's show. They just want them there as an insurance policy so you can't say we're racist. See, they they don't want to give Diamond and Silk ratings. They want Diamond and Silk to give them cover. You think Diamond and Silk are shocked about this? You think maybe they're finally beginning to realize how deeply they've been used by a bunch of craven racist white people who pretended to like them and laughed at their jokes about Barack Obama? Uh, you, You think they're shocked? You think Herman Cain and Ben Carson were shocked when all those Republicans that loved him so much never actually came out to vote for them? Right. I mean, remember Ben Carson, but you all liked me so much at the debate. Why didn't any of you vote for me? Because they don't actually care about you. They care about what you represent. You make them look less sinister. Diamond and Silk were fired about spreading rumors for about COVID-19 officially. But Diamond and Silk are held to a higher standard than the U.S. president. And The Washington Post, by the way, just reported today or yesterday as as the administration was discouraging mask use in the early critical phases of this outbreak, uh, a White House team Was assigned to get thousands of masks for senior staff. They got to impeach this guy again. They got to impeach this guy again. They got to impeach him for. Everything. No more this impeaching him for two counts. I still want him to be impeached for negligence for Puerto Rico. You know why? Because we're all Puerto Rico now. Harvard researchers and medical experts have said that unless we are testing over 500,000 people per day by May 1st, no state should reopen. Just so you know, we're testing about 100,000 to 150,000 people per day, okay? And Trump brags about that, but we're, I think, number 42 per capita in testing. Uh, the fact is, testing 100,000 people a day means to test every single American, when you're only doing one hundred thousand a day would take nine years. A recent study showed that there's been a thirty four percent increase in the use of anxiety meds since the pandemic began, and that number might be lower than expected, given the fact that millions of Americans lost their health insurance during this time. And for me, when I need to have some sustenance, I don't turn to anxiety meds or therapy or anything that's introspective that might help me understand why I repeat the same shitty behaviors. I turn to revoltingly fake Christians like Pat Robertson. And Pat Robertson is this week's revoltingly fake Christian of the week. What did he do this time, Johnny, to earn that honor? I'm so glad you rhetorically asked. Pat Robertson just came out and claimed that abortion and same-sex marriage are partly to blame for the coronavirus. Now, um, I've never met Pat. He married my mom's cousin. In Virginia we grew up you know right in his backyard he did perform the service uh, and one time uh, I'll give him credit his uh, university allowed me to use their TV insert studio when I was down in Virginia for the holidays uh, to do an appearance on MSNBC so um, full disclosure uh, thank you Pat but he's 90 now he runs this Christian broadcasting network and, and he said that uh, God will not end the coronavirus pandemic until people turned from their wicked ways you confess your sins and forsake them then he heals the land it's not before he said on the 700 Club now what are these sins is it uh, grabbing women by the pussy is it voting to keep out uh, war refugees is it voting to make the rich richer or the poor poorer is it any number of things Donald Trump has done from inauguration day that are completely against the teachings of the religion Pat Robertson pretends he follows? No, it's abortion and same-sex marriage, neither of which are prohibited by the Bible. I'm going to say that again because I think people need to know the Bible is not against abortion. It never prohibits abortion. In fact, in Numbers chapter 5, God gives Moses rather specific and kind of grisly abortion tips uh, for pregnant unfaithful wives don't worry, MAGA guys, those women don't have a choice either. And the Bible is not against gay marriage. They'll try to say that Matthew 19, uh, is about, uh, gay marriage. When Jesus says male and female, he made them read the whole chapter. Uh, that's not Jesus coming out against gay marriage. It's Jesus coming out against straight divorce, which Trump has had three of. So they're ridiculous. Um, Pat Robertson came out again and Falwell did the same thing to say that this is happening. I mean, how is this not blasphemy? How is this not taking God's name in vain? How is this not libelous to say that 55,000, 58,000 Americans so far have died because um, we don't incarcerate women for terminating pregnancies and because we give gay taxpaying Americans the same right to love as heterosexual taxpaying Americans? I mean, that God is punishing us because of gay marriage? You know what I think? I don't think that the abortion and uh, gay marriage are, you know, why God's punishing us. I think Bible Belt unemployment and divorce rates and Bible Belt illiteracy and meth plagues, uh, Bible Belt violent crime and illegitimacy and incarceration. Oh, and uh, Bible Belt opioid crises uh, and uh, tornadoes are actually God's punishment for Pat Robertson. Flip it around on your right wing loved one sometime. Uh, Here's a very interesting thing on race. I love my liberals. I love my Caucasians and my Asians and my Latinos and my my African-Americans and everybody. But there was a really wacky Pew Research poll. Um, We're all sitting around worried about, oh, my God, it's too old white men. It's too old white men. And when I say we're all, you know who I mean? I mean white people because it's really only white people that have a major issue with this. In the new Pew poll, they asked these Democrats if it bothers you that your nominee is going to be a white male in his 70s. Uh, 59% say it does not bother them. 60% say it doesn't bother them. <laughs> I mean, t- t- that, that, the, that it's going to be an old white guy. So let's break this down. Among Caucasians, it bothers 49%, doesn't bother 51%. And that's the most aggravated we get. African-Americans, 72% don't care that it's a white guy in his 70s. They have higher concerns right now than the demographic of who's going to replace the guy they want to get out. It only bothers 28% of African-Americans. And for Hispanics, 70% don't care that the nominee is a white male in his 70s. Uh, 30% have a problem with that. I mean, how are you going to complain about Joe Biden when you have the president who? who comes out and talks about disinfectant injections and then spends the weekend having Twitter tirades against the media. Again, he's not talking about the families who've lost loved ones. We hit 50,000 and he spent the weekend in a state of self-pity. Jesus didn't play victim on his worst day. And he, he slammed all these stories about his lax work habits, which we know are true. He watches TV. He eats McDonald's. he, He watches Fox news. He talks to people on the phone. He has a press conference. And then he does a few official duties, even fewer these days. So he he, he called on reporters who wrote about Russia's interference in the U.S. presidential election to return their Nobel Prizes. N-O-B-L-E. Their Nobel Prizes. And he did it twice. Now, um... You know, here's where we talk about the fact that the president can't spell. He can't use apostrophes. He can't name the three branches of government. He really can't. And on top of it, uh, he comes out and 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 does this. Um, Okay, no line of the Mueller report has been disproven. No line of the Steele dossier has been disproven none of this has been disproven it's all the truth and here's the funny thing uh trump came out and he had a pretty good defense he was just being sarcastic right like he was just being sarcastic when he said, uh, "Go ahead and in, inject disinfectants," he was just being sarcastic. When he said he grabs a woman by the pussy and they let you do it, he was being sarcastic. When he spent five years claiming Barack Obama wasn't born here, he was—I mean, General Flynn—he was being sarcastic when he pled guilty and apologized and said he was going to turn to God to help him turn his life around. He doesn't mean it now; it's all sarcasm. He's too brilliant. You libs are off there playing checkers; he's playing three D chess. Only problem is, um, he said he was trying to say noble sarcastically, N-O-B-L-E, to say you're not noble. The only problem is there's no Nobel Prize for reported stories. There's Pulitzers for journalism. Uh, There's a Nobel Prize for literature. Um, And then Donald Trump deleted the whole thing. You know, at this point I think Donald Trump keeps Rudy Giuliani around just to make him look smart. Giuliani tweeted, Why did the US NIH in twenty seventeen give three point seven million to the Wuhan lab in China? Such grants were prohibited in twenty fourteen. Did President Obama grant an exception? Friends, I dream of a life where I can drink as much as Rudy. I dream of a life where I can just sell access to foreign douchebags and make a living selling access to myself to pay my three alimonies. Um, But Rudy, uh, I hate to tell you this. Donald Trump was president in 2017, not Barack Obama. Chris Matthews just said the allegation leading to his NBC MSNBC exit was highly justified. That's a first in me, too. And Donald Trump finally um, said that he really had no responsibility for the spike in calls to poison control centers after he said injecting disinfectants could be used as a cure. Uh, We just heard a guy in Kansas City had to be rushed to the hospital. He was drinking cleaner after hearing that. You know, we don't really think people are this stupid, but 60 million voted for a reality show clown. So, again, you know, they asked Trump about all these calls. I mean, Maryland Governor Hogan and Michigan Governor Whitmer reported the emergency hotlines were off the hook, heavy traffic with calls related to Trump's remarks last Thursday. I mean, the manufacturer of Lysol had to release a statement saying that under no circumstance should our disinfectant products be administered into the human body. And they asked Donald Trump about this. And he said, I can't imagine why. (laughs) <laughs> okay, uh, the rest of the show is going to be great. Um, we're going to talk about the, uh, well, a lot of good news, things to talk you off a ledge, as well as the happiest countries in the world. But right now, I'm so happy to bring you a, uh, a an interview with one of my favorite journalists. You might know this man, um, if you read The Nation, or if you watch cable news, uh, or if you've been to any of the sexy liberal tour dates in Minneapolis, in Madison, Wisconsin. He's joined us on stage many times. I've had the great pleasure of doing The Nation Cruise with this man three times. John Nichols is the Washington correspondent for The Nation, and he's also a contributing writer for The Progressive, a magazine I highly recommend you support, also in these times. Uh, he's the associate editor of Madison, Wisconsin's Capital Times. He's written many books, including The Death and uh, Death and Life uh, of American Journalism, The Genius of Impeachment, and his new book is called The Fight for the Soul of the Democratic Party, The Enduring Legacy of Henry Wallace's anti-fascist, anti-racist politics. We have a really great conversation here about what an anti-fascist or an anti-racist does, and about the greatest vice president in American history that you've probably never heard of. This was a case where there was a vice president who was so liberal, the Democratic Party had to get rid of him and not give him a chance to become president. We also cover everything from the bravery of Wisconsin voters to uh, who Joe Biden should have as a running mate. Um, I hope you really enjoy it. John Nichols is a national treasure, and uh, he is a great force in the fight against fascism. At home and abroad. Enjoy.
0: Oh my God, we have an exciting new client, Literati. Oh! It's the number one book club for kids. Oh yeah. I had to do some digging to find people young enough, but my ex just had a baby. My nephews. Three and seven years old. So perfect. We sent it to both of them. We're going to get reviews. It is for ages zero to 12. Yeah. Right. And it, I, libraries, schools, bookstores are all closed. Yeah. Right. Literati has you covered with something truly unique. This subscription book club for kids was founded by two women to make it easy to find interesting books delivered right to your doorstep. No more scrolling online trying to find that perfect book for your child or to give as a gift. Each Literati box contains five books based on a theme with exclusive original art personalized note to your child. What kid doesn't love receiving something in the mail? Home delivery, super important right now. And with their curated selection, only keep your favorites. Send the rest back for free for a limited time. Try it with Travis's nephews. Go to literati.com slash Stephanie for 25% off your first two orders. This is their best offer available anywhere. Go to literati.com slash Stephanie 25% off your first two orders. That's literati.com slash Stephanie. Terms and conditions apply.
1: John Nichols, what a pleasure to finally have you on the Sanity Cast after all these radio and live appearances. Thank you so much for joining us. I feel saner already. (laughs) Let me ask you before we get to the big stuff, let's go for the really big stuff. How is your quarantine? How is your life? How are you managing this peculiar time? Um, John,
2: I write books for a living in my garage. And so, (laughs) as you might imagine, my life is oddly similar. Um, to what it was before. The the big difference, um, aside from, you know, the genuine concern about health and safety, which I, which I think has affected all of us, and you know, obviously the genuine concern about another great depression, um, is that I've got kids around, and um, and I just want to pay tribute to public school teachers because it's a pretty amazing thing every day to be able to send your teenagers off. Um, you know, almost at dawn and and have them be out there with school and then sports and other things and not come back till early evening. Um, The teachers take a lot of stress off families.
1: I'll agree. It's been really impressive. I mean, does that mean the schools are still open there? Because we're doing all homeschooling here.
2: We're we're doing video. Our kids are out. But what I'm saying is, I've got the kids around. They're great kids. I mean, I'm not complaining, but they're present, you know? And, right. um, and as a result, it's, it's a very different thing. I have I, I, like, you know, you, I suspect I do interviews and, and, you know, a lot of conversations with members of Congress and things like that. And I now have, you know, like, so they sort of burst in the room and say, you know, can you help me with this history question or something like that? And it's, it's just a reality that that we send our our kids off to public schools and not every public school is perfect and I understand all that but you know we have teachers who you know take 30 sometimes 35 kids in a classroom and and teach them things make things happen and then also occupy them for a full day I think a lot of parents are now realizing um, how important that is how vital that is to sort of the the functioning of society, and um, here where I live, the teachers are really adapting incredibly. They're doing all kinds of video teaching, and and I mean, my my daughters are working like crazy, doing you know really doing a lot of schoolwork. Um, but it's different. That's probably the biggest difference of the lockdown for me is yeah. to have um, you know my family fully present twenty four seven which I love, um, but also recognize, you know, that that's uh, that, that does come with some interruptions along the way.
1: Of course. I mean, we took a, it's been six weeks of homeschooling for me with an eight year old. And, um, the first two weeks I would call it, uh, uh, screen Bosnia. That was kind of just how it was, but with more tears. So yeah, as we're all now adapting to whatever the new normal is, Kids are, of course, at the forefront of it. And it does seem, John, like the new normal keeps changing week to week, both in terms of our our personal lives, as our analog lives contract and our digital lives expand. And of course, in our politics, the new normal keeps on shifting and shifting and shifting week after week. Before we went live, we were talking about some of the things that probably won't go back to the way they used to be once this plague is over. I mean, in terms of TV production and doing local news and cable news, I I think that, you know, uh, in many ways, um, sending cars to bring people to studios is over and having a webcam with your putty colored wall and bookcase behind you is in.
2: I, I think that is a part of the many changes that are going to occur. About three years ago, three or four years ago, Bob McChesney and I wrote a book um, titled People Get Ready. And it was a, a, a history of the future. It was talking about automation and robotification and how these things are going to change our economy and, and our, our society. And it was, you know, frankly, for the time we wrote it, it was very futuristic but one of the things that we were told at that time when we interviewed you know, tech experts and CEOs of different companies was that corporate America, as well as just business in general, had a capacity to automate that was greater than what they were doing. Right. And right. partially it was because they were afraid of implementation, complexities that might go with it. But also there was genuinely some concern about the radical societal shift? What if you, you know, really do eliminate a lot of jobs? What what happens next? And I think what coronavirus has done is sort of like, you know, rocketed us into that next stage. Now we have had the, the dramatic societal shift. Um, we have had people, you know, lose a lot of jobs and probably lose some more. And uh, I think one of the undercovered realities of this moment and one of the you know discussions that we ought to be having is about how robotification and automation of all kinds of industries are going is going to happen A and B how it's going to affect how we come out of this moment. And it may be very different than some people anticipate.
1: But in a different way, I mean for for most of my life, John, we've been struggling seeing the American dream and, and the concept of upward mobility consistently Pushed away by the same three factors, um, time and time again, since I was a kid, it's outsourcing, it's deindustrialization, and it's automation. Do you think that it's going to become even more automated in terms of what the robots can do? And if that's the case, should we all get ready for a lot more debates about universal basic income? You betcha.
2: Um, look, I argued from the beginning of the 2020 campaign that that the only candidate um, who was you know, really kind of pushing the limits of the economic debate. There were many other debates, and, and but it was particularly pushing the limits of the economic debate was Andrew Yang. Now, you right. could like right. him or dislike him. You could agree with him or disagree. And frankly, I interviewed him, was around him in a number of settings, and I had differences with him on, on some of his thinking and some of his approaches. However, at least he was opening up all these questions. And at the right. time, intriguingly enough, he was seen as, oh, that's sort of interesting or that's fascinating. Most, it was a, the biggest fail of national media imaginable, because every time he was in a debate, they would sort of let him talk for a couple minutes and then right, race off right. and try and get other people fighting with each other. But the end result is, yes, um, the the transformation that is going to occur and now is going to be dramatically sped up is one in which a tremendous number of the jobs that that really provide the the social safety net of our society. And I don't mean the safety net that government provides. I mean the economic safety net, the jobs that you can get if you are willing to show up, uh, put your time in and do it well. You know what I mean? You're, you're a good worker, but maybe you're not a, a technically, you're not a specialist in some area or something like that. A lot of those jobs are going to be very threatened. Um, and that includes, um, you know, it, we could just go on and on about it. They're in transportation, they're in uh, retail, they're in a lot of other areas. I'll give you one quick example. I live near the University of Wisconsin campus in Madison, Wisconsin. Uh, most students went home, but our international students largely stayed. Um, and so there's still a substantial number of students on campus. Um, the On the campus, they've been on the kind of cutting edge of some robotification and I was going by the campus the other day at a stoplight and there was a crosswalk and I saw five very sophisticated small robots um, waiting at the stoplight across the street to go to the dorms and deliver food wow and they were these are 1 foot tall kind of it looks like a box with four wheels basically very you know modern uh, tech tech materials but fresh food or the food wow. whatever was in them they had been programmed to go to a certain dorm room. And these robots, they they stop at the stoplight. They cross the street. They go to the dorm. They pre- they uh, they alert the door to open. They then go to the uh, elevator. They can go. You know what I mean? It's it's yeah. This is next stage stuff, brother.
1: I know. And It's happening
2: right now.
1: It's happening right now. So, I mean, what does that look like? What does it look like when already we're in more of a a, a gig economy? We're not a manufacturing economy. We could still be if we had the will to employ Americans and recognize that, you know, widespread prosperity and middle class helps rich people, too. But I, I don't see that happening. What are all these people, John? going to do with themselves all day. There's only going to be so many fast food jobs for college grads to apply for, uh, and, and not every one of these folks is going to be suited to try and sell stuff on Etsy.
2: Well, and, and what happens when um, the jobs that many, many folks have taken because factories closed and warehouses automated, and so they became truck drivers. Uh, yeah, exactly.
1: People.
2: These are good jobs. And they're, and, they're, and, they're he- and they're heroes now. Oh, they're the frontline heroes, right? Um, and, and, you know, this is going to change because we are going to move to, um, the driverless truck long before we move to the driverless car.
1: That's true. And,
2: um, and so as we do this, this is, this gets to the heart and soul of what our politics ought to be about. Um, and and yet it never is. And it's a, it's a nightmare in in this regard. Um, our politics ought to be about intelligent thinking as regards the future. You know, I mean, it, it's it, we should certainly be talking about how we handle the challenges in the moment. And in a moment, in an emergency moment, we should be talking directly about them. But in a relatively sophisticated society, you ought to have the problems of the moment dealt with. Right. You should have a national health care system. You should have planning for pandemics. You should have, uh, you know, the infrastructure for education that's affordable and functional. You should you know, deal with housing and all these these things. Those are baseline things that you ought to be dealing with. Right. And then you ought to open up a discussion about what happens when we automate and what happens when we change. Now, I will tell you that there are members of Congress who do get this. And um, I've been having a number of conversations recently with Sherrod Brown, the senator from Ohio. Um, and he's part of a, a group of members of Congress who really are talking about you know, how to come out of this thing into that next economy and make sure that it is humane and fair and decent. And those, I I begin with those terms rather than all the, you know, the economic terms that people use, because at the end of the day, we've got to make people's lives functional. And, um, and the one thing that I will tell you on the, the one element of manufacturing is we may get an element, some parts of, of manufacturing back because There, as Sherrod Brown said to me the other day, I've got a big interview with him that I'll publish in the Nation soon. As he said the other day, the biggest problem of trade policy was that we ceded planning to multinational corporations, right? And what they planned to do was make a lot of money, and as a result, they offshored
1: all sorts of production
2: that frankly shouldn't have been offshored. Should have been places, yeah. So that we may get back, you
1: know. Well, this is something I wrestle with for a long time, because I think a smart Democrat would run for office saying, why did Donald Trump run saying that he would bring jobs back and then give a massive tax cut to all the companies that outsourced your job? I think a smart Democrat would say any company that outsources America's labor force, they don't have the right to call themselves an American company anymore. If your profits are in the Caymans and your workers are in Asia, uh, no, you will not still enjoy the same protections of the state. As other companies that don't close up shop and are still employing Americans, wouldn't that seem like a true populist message message?
2: That would seem like a very populist message. and let me let me just add a footnote to to your thinking there, okay. Um, when they did that big tax cut for for all these companies, they also did something else. They created a a tax break for um, equipment for you know, retrofitting factories, for improving factories. Which sounded great, right? You know, it sounds like, oh, good. They're gonna, you know, if you bring in new equipment, if you modernize your facility, um, that means you're gonna stay in America. That means that you're gonna continue that production there. So, okay, that's why you're getting this taxing. Here's the problem: um, the they can use that tax break to to robot to do robotification to automate their plants.
1: Of course, yeah. And- so
2: we are actually possibly going to fund, uh, unless we. Revisit some of this stuff. We're actually going to fund, in some cases, a speed up of automation. That's true.
1: You know, I was thinking about this, John, because you you at uh, early April sat down with Senator Bernie Sanders, um, who I know you've interviewed many, many times, and I've enjoyed your interviews over the years. You you asked him a question that I want to turn around and ask you about what we're experiencing in the pandemic, and with home quarantine, house arrest. You you asked Bernie, does this moment vindicate some of what you were talking about over the years that was called radical? Let me push that question to you. Does what we're seeing now, the lack of preparation, the poor response, and the lack of infrastructure in many cases to care for people, does it vindicate a lot of what liberals have been talking about for a long time?
2: It vindicates a lot of what liberals have been talking about because liberals have argued for humane responses, right? And when I say humane, I don't mean nice. I mean, responses based on human needs, on the, the circumstance of the great mass of people. And and so that's always to the good. That's always beneficial. But But when you get into emergency situations, you realize it's also necessary. So it does vindicate that. But I would go a step further, John, and say it vindicates radical thinking. And, you know, the, the term radical is very misunderstood in American parlance. It's, it tends to be seen as, uh, you know, something that's dangerous or threatening or extreme. Yeah. Truly, the, the term radical refers to somebody who thinks outside the box, who who kind of asks the next question and, and sort of presses for a consideration of alternative analyses and alternative approaches, and we've had people who do this, and we, our media by and large tends to laugh at them or dismiss them or you know push them to the side. I, I'll, I'll go to the, one of the simplest models of this, and I don't think, frankly, that Hillary Clinton was a particularly radical thinker.
0: And no, yet, she was not. She
2: was, no, but when she was preparing to run in 2015, when she was getting her presidential bid ready. Um, She actually put out some pretty sophisticated statements on the gig economy and on the transformation of the economy and on automation and some of these issues we're talking about. She was ridiculed for that by, of all people, Jeb Bush and Marco Rubio. Mm
1: -hmm. And they
2: actually made fun of her for saying, oh, you're talking about robots and stuff like this. And the weird part is our media picked up on that and, and many media outlets, you know, like treated Marco Rubio's ridicule of Hillary Clinton's attempt to look at at some serious economic issues more seriously than the attempt to look at the economic issues. And so I just think we have a situation in America where uh, too much of our media, uh, and I'm a part of it, you know, I'm part of media for sure, but too much of our media literally um, dumbs down the conversation at precisely the point it ought to be smartening it up.
1: Oh, always.
2: Yeah. So maybe we're in a point where because of the crisis and because of the challenges, um, if we're lucky, uh, some people might actually recognize that they just have to think a little bigger. They have to push the limits out. And that does it is going to vindicate a lot of radical thinking because we're going to need a social welfare state coming out of this, I think. And we are also going to need a lot of planning uh, as regards how we organize not just our public health, but also an economy.
1: Um, John, I couldn't agree more. I keep hoping that it's not always going to take a global crisis and FDR-sized majorities to bring about needed reforms in this country. But you know, your your new book is the fight for the soul of the Democratic Party, and this is an issue you've talked about and written about uh, for a very long time. And I wonder how it feels to you at the dawn of the 2020 campaign to see Joe Biden as the nominee and on paper find himself to be arguably the most progressive nominee in the history of the Democratic Party, Joe Biden, of all people. I mean, obviously, thank you, Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren and their supporters for pushing the party nominee this way. But how significant, if at all, is it that Joe Biden has has somehow come to bear this title?
2: It's it's how history always works, right? I mean, you don't become uh, the great leader by... Osmosis, right? Um, you know, or by you know some sort of natural selection, or what I, you know, whatever term we want to use here. No, it's it's the times you live in, and uh, some people rise to them, uh, some people do not. Donald Trump is actually being undone by the circumstance we're in, right? It is, I believe, Donald Trump is is being revealed more effectively than anything his critics tried to do over the last three or four years. You know, by the simple reality of his daily press briefings, right. and and so it cuts that way. Sometimes you just it, it's clear you don't rise to the occasion. Uh, but our great leaders have often tended to be folks who were not um, the great radical thinkers of their time. In fact, they were often compromised choices uh, who had to rise to the moment. And the easiest way for people to wrap their head around this is to think of uh, Richard Nixon. He was certainly not one of our great leaders in a lot of ways. And yet, because he became president in 1969, at a point where you had uh, a great deal of civil rights activity, you had the rise of feminism, you had uh, the coming of birthday where you just celebrated the 50th anniversary of it, you had all of these kind of pressures in place. And so when you look back at Richard Nixon, you find that on a lot of domestic policy, he was a more left-wing president oh, yeah. than a lot of folks. But it wasn't because he was any kind of liberal. It was because the Times demanded so much more that he actually, you know, bent to the reality. It's really and, true. Yeah. And this is true with Democrats, too. Lyndon Johnson wasn't exactly the greatest, you know, thing since sliced bread. Uh, but he came into office after the Kennedy assassination in the midst of the civil rights era uh, at, a, at a just a, a, a very intense moment. And he did some pretty amazing things in 1964, 1965, 1966. Then he went off the rails into Vietnam. And that's really what the book, that's what the book is about. The book essentially argues that um, there's been a tension in the Democratic Party since the end of World War II. And that is how to win the peace. And um, World War II proved that the United States could come together and defeat fascism. It certainly had allies around the world but it was pretty amazing what the U.S. did. And Henry Wallace, who was vice president under Roosevelt during his third term, argued that the great challenge you know, at a certain point, once we knew we were going to win the war, was to figure out how we were going to win the peace. Mm. And he argued for addressing racism, addressing sexism, addressing economic disparity, class division. I mean, he really was very blunt about what needed to be done in the immediate aftermath of World War II. That terrified the wits out of a lot of the Democratic leadership Indeed. and they pushed him aside. They, they, they literally knocked him off the ticket in 1944. And what I argue in the book is that again and again and again, throughout the, the history of the Democratic Party over the last 75 years, they have been presented with an opportunity to leap into the future, to really, you know, kind of wrap their heads around where we're going and lead. And too frequently, they have pushed the people arguing for uh, going for the future, trying to, if you will, win the peace, aside and gone for centrists and compromises. And it has, even when the party has won, it has tended to lose the debate. And so that's what the book is about. It's an argument that at some point, the Democratic Party has to figure out how to start winning the debate, as well as winning the occasional election.
1: Well, it seems, John, uh, you know, in my lifetime, this has been always the struggle that I've seen. And yeah, you'll have someone like Barack Obama have convincingly huge margins and you think, wow, this guy could have gone a lot more progressive, could have been a lot more daring. But then you see such paltry turnout for him in his two midterms. It sometimes seems like it's impossible. But I've come to believe that if there's any politician in America, say, who could get single payer health care or could get meaningful action on climate, At times, I think it's Donald Trump. He'd have to have a different soul and a brain. But to see someone have such a devoted base, imagine if he took that power and actually channeled it for a common good instead of the profits of a few. I'd like to think, however, that any Democrat could easily get office by going bigger just by being more inspiring. For a long time, I thought what Hillary Clinton needed to do in 2016— was to come out and say, okay, three things I'm going to stand for. Decriminalize cannabis, Mm -hmm. forgiveness of student loan debts. There's a real bailout. Let's these young people and millennials start buying houses with their bank payments instead of paying for their education and uh, open up Medicare to whoever wants it. Three big things that would get young people, that would get poor people, that would get minorities off the couch to come vote and be inspired. Because if you don't have a rock star candidate, you need rock star ideas. And with a Senate like this and Mitch McConnell, it's a pretty safe bet. You can go big in the campaign. They won't let you do any of it. And then you can run for re-election based on the same bold ideas and this do-nothing Senate. Uh, honestly, with this built-in failsafe of Mitch McConnell, I don't understand why more of these Democrats don't go bolder, because it seems like they have to to inspire people to come out and vote. Well, that's exactly the
2: argument of the book. And I run scenarios throughout the book um, looking at, you know, just how it might have been different. Um, And and let me give you—I mean, some of them are very, very simple. Um, In 2000, what if Al Gore hadn't chosen Joe Lieberman as his running mate, somebody Mm -hmm. who, in short order, would be literally, you know, organizing the other side uh, politically, and and instead had chosen a a very strong uh, candidate from? you know, the upper Midwest or New England, you know, so you just could have won New Hampshire, which by the way, would have given him the presidency. Right. Um, It's usually not that I, I don't usually go there. What I, what I tend to do is suggest what if you had, you know, taken a shot in a, in a tough situation and just gone big. And as an example of that, I I use the 1988 presidential election with uh, Mike Dukakis being the Democratic nominee. Mike Dukakis, a relatively liberal, very decent man, He's still around. Sure, um, And uh, his chief opponent for the nomination was Jesse Jackson. And Jesse Jackson had run this incredibly energetic campaign that historians still say, you know, stands out as a, as a template for, you know, things that Obama would go on to do and others. And, and he, had, he had a whole new he had this crazy idea that you would try to increase turnout rather than try and reach just swing voters, right? Well, what I suggest is that um, what if you put Jesse Jackson on the ticket as the running mate? If you, if you swallowed hard and you took that risk, well, um, it is possible that you might have lost Texas in the South. Right. Oh, but Dukakis did lose Texas in the South. But he also lost all kinds of Midwestern states. Dukakis lost California. That's right. Right? And and so the argument that I make is if you had had a mobilization campaign in 1988, as opposed to a traditional, you know, centrist campaign. And by the way, the the nominee in in 88 was Lloyd Benson from Texas. That's right. Literally the the most boring man to be nominated for president before Tim Kaine in 2008. (laughs) And, um, And Lloyd Benson was put on a ticket because he was supposed to be able to win Texas and maybe some other southern states, and he didn't exactly. do it. Yeah, so,
1: I anyway, know.
2: I just keep going to this point, and my my argument throughout the history is that that the the Democrats invariably err toward cautious and centrism when they're making their big decisions, and this has not allowed them to build out the mass movement politics that that frankly. Uh, Sustains them not just through a presidential election with an appealing candidate like Barack Obama or even Bill Clinton, but through the midterm elections where you, you know, you mobilize a lot of people to come out and sustain a presidency that's actually trying to do
1: Part two of John Nichols will be in the next episode. Um, Here's some stuff to talk you off a ledge, because, again, I'm becoming addicted to feel good stories. I, I don't want to be this guy who needs feel good stories. But you know what? All of the optimism, all of the faith I lost in my country on Election Day 2016 has been restored in the past couple of years by the Parkland kids, by AOC, by having five women running for president, by seeing the activism, by seeing the turnout in the 2018 midterms, and and now it's by the heroes we see every day. Aren't you inspired? I mean, from the frontline workers and and medics and, and doctors and nurses and EMTs to truck drivers and people who do work in meat packing plants and people who are keeping the supply lines open grocery store clerks my god every day i'm astonished the ups guys and mail carriers so many people who are risking their lives and all of you everyone who is literally staying at home putting their life on hold because you care enough to try to save the lives of people you will never meet well yuniro soriano um was uh 34 weeks pregnant and she went to the northwell health Southside hospital on the second of april she couldn't breathe And she had contractions. She was about to give birth, and she tested positive for COVID-19. And her oxygen levels kept on going down and going down. So the team at the hospital decided to put her in a medically induced coma, got her on her ventilator, and they did an emergency C-section. And the baby was born the next day. He tested negative, and they kept her on the ventilator and chest tubes for 11 days. On April 13th, when her child was already 10 days old, she was taken off the ventilator, and because she was in a mentally induced coma, a medically induced coma, she didn't get to meet her child until the day she left the hospital. And you should go online and see the footage. Healthcare workers lined the hall at Northwest Southside Hospital cheering for her. And as they wheeled her out of the hospital to get to her car, once she was on the sidewalk, they gave her her baby. And if that's not inspiring, look at the factory workers in southeast Pennsylvania. Uh, they clocked in one day in late March, a group of uh, about 43 men at this factory, um, Nebraska America they didn't check out they didn't clock out of their factory for 28 days 43 men volunteered to live in to have a live-in at the factory to sleep there to eat there take their meals and not go home to quarantine together and what did they do there? they worked 12-hour shifts all day all night non-stop 43 men 12-hour shifts producing tens of millions of pounds for the materials that go into face masks and surgical gowns worn on the front lines Gavin Newsom has a uh, just This is a brilliant new program. I, I love this, focusing on caring for seniors while still giving farmers and restaurant workers and delivery people a chance to get back to work. This is good government. This is a program that's going to let restaurants reopen so they can prepare and deliver meals to seniors. This goes beyond feeding people and putting other people back to work. Gavin Newsom said, it's not just about the meals, it's about the human connection. It's about someone just checking in as they're delivering them meals and making sure people are okay. And if you're someone who's ever cared for seniors in your life, you know how much this means. Uh, In New Zealand, I love this, the Prime Minister, Jacinda Ardern, who I love, what a hero after the mosque shooting, she made an official national announcement for children on the air to reassure children that the tooth fairy is considered an essential worker. My kids already lost one tooth in this quarantine. Uh, Over in Australia, um, scuba and boat operators, they've obviously stopped running tour operations, and now they're using their skills to plant new coral On the Great Barrier Reef, since there's no people going there. And then there was an ad hoc group of 20 world leaders who have agreed now to adopt a WHO vaccine plan and work together in bringing it to the masses as soon as possible. The US is not participating. And why? Because 20 nations working together to get a vaccine plan and give it to everyone as soon as possible, doesn't give a chance for any of your donors to make any fucking money. Oh, one more thing for Gavin Newsom, who I really like, by the way. I worked with him at Current. He had a series at Current while Stephanie and I were doing our shows there, and um, I got to hang out with him a couple times. And uh, one time we were on the we were, we were having some luncheon in Century City in LA and we went outside to get our ride uh, to go to the studio and there was no car there and I'm just hanging on the sidewalk with Gavin Newsom. This was after he'd left the Lieutenant Governor's office and he said, oh man, if I had my old job, I could just call the cops. He's a funny guy, but a a deep guy. He was the one who first gave gay marriage out in this country um, in 2004 and he just announced his state's going to give $500 to undocumented immigrants who aren't eligible for the paltry $1,200 in aid. Now, I know it's not a lot, but it's significant. California has 2 million undocumented immigrants. They're going to give them $500 a piece to help them get through this time. Uh, They make up 10% of the state's workforce. And undocumented workers paid $2.5 billion in state and local taxes last year. This is supremely patriotic and Christian. If anyone you know uses the term illegals, you can call them out for their revoltingly fake Christianity. If there's ever been a time that has proven that undocumented workers are essential, that undocumented workers are propping up our economy, and that undocumented workers deserve health care. Because when undocumented people who have no health insurance get sick, you know what they do? They go to work. They have to. There's no protection. And maybe it takes a plague for us to realize that something that hurts some of us hurts all of us. And if we don't protect the people at the margins, the people at the top, pff, shucks, they're going to be food one day. And here's, here's one more good news story that just made me so happy. Um, <laughs> Grace Helen Whitner is uh, a new judge in Washington state. She was just appointed to the state Supreme Court and that is now the most diverse in history. Um, she's been a public defender her whole life and a private defense attorney and she's always been an outspoken advocate for judicial diversity. She's co-chair of the Washington State Minority and Justice Commission. She's sought for years to educate marginalized communities about America's legal system. She is black, female, gay, disabled, and an immigrant from Trinidad. This is what we talk about when we talk about the American dream. Governor Inslee just appointed her to the Supreme Court, uh, and he also just swore in Raquel Montoya Lewis, who's the first Native American justice to serve on the bench. This is clearly a counterpoint to Donald Trump's federal Supreme Court, which gets more male, pale and stale with each passing moment. And now, as promised, what are the happiest countries in the world. Well, um, speaking of pale, here's the deal. The World Happiness Report is a survey they have on the state of global happiness. It ranks 156 countries by how happy their citizens perceive themselves to be. And for the first time in 2020, the report's ranking uh, cities around the world by their subjective well-being. And it goes more deeply into how the social, urban, and natural environments combine to affect our happiness. Four of the six factors, that this report uses to explain a country's happiness are different aspects of the social environment, which includes having someone to count on, having a sense of freedom to make life decisions, generosity, and trust. So number five is Norway. Number four is Iceland. Number three is Switzerland. Number two is Denmark. Number one is Finland. The U.S. came in at number 18, proving what I've said many times. uh, The American dream has become... The Norwegian dream. So here's one last thing. Um, you you got to take a look at how, you know, Donald Trump reveals his avarice, his dishonesty, his deep insecurity. Um, he has this habit uh, that people are beginning to notice now where he describes conversations that have only happened in his mind and presenting them to the public as if they're real. You know, this is what he does all the time. He'll just come out and regardless of the facts, he'll just be like, don't worry, I'll take you to the zoo tomorrow. Right? I know you say it's going to be wonderful tomorrow. I'll take you to the zoo. Except the zoo's closed because it's a fucking plague. So, you know, he tweeted about how dangerous it is to believe news that doesn't include the names of sources. And think about this every time he talks about no sources. This is a quote of his. I've spoken to numerous leaders of countries over the last 48 hours, and uh, they're saying that we are leading the way. We are really leading the way in so many different ways. Grammar aside, he didn't name any of the leaders or any of the countries that said this. He didn't make any effort to explain how America is leading the way since we have the most coronavirus cases and the most coronavirus deaths. Last week, he told reporters, other countries are calling us, countries that you thought we were doing well, are calling us for help on testing. And then he said, I wish I could tell you stories. What other countries, even powerful countries, say to me, the leaders, they say it quietly and they say it off the record. But they have great respect for what we can do. Guys, here's the deal. This This is still going on. People are still dying. And Donald Trump is so emotionally dependent on praise from other people that he's now reliant on praise from other people he refuses to identify because they're people that don't exist except in Donald Trump's endlessly tortured Adderall, damaged mind. Forget his taxes. I want to see a list of his meds. And I want to thank you guys for listening to SanityCast here on the Stephanie Miller Podcast Network. Do me a favor. Uh, If you like, please subscribe and review, and and, and please, please listen to all the podcasts right here on the network. Uh, Normally, this is where I plug a lot of gigs. I don't have any gigs to plug. We're hoping, we're hoping that we're able to do some dates in some states that are safe. Believe me, no one, no one wants to come out and get back and return to business more than uh, the sexy liberals. The only problem is shit. We're cursed with that birth defect known as empathy, and we're all willing to wait to make our money and have our fun until we know it's safe for people we'll never even meet. That's the difference between right-wingers and left-wingers, folks. It's empathy versus selfishness. This country's entire history has been a struggle between two ideologies. Either we're all in this together, or we want what we want when we want it. Thank you for being all in this together with the rest of us who are thinking, who are feeling, who have empathy, and who know how to spell your I'm John Fuglesang. Please check out uh, johnfugelsang.com. Listen to my show on SiriusXM. Didn't even plug it to the top. We're having a great time in this pandemic. We just had, uh, my God, who's been on my show? We just had uh, Marianne Williamson and Jane Lynch. Uh, Marilou Henner just called in. Rose McGowan is going to be back on the show this week. I'm very excited about that. We just, just, just had uh, uh, the great David Crosby, Emmy and Tony winner, Ellen uh Lots of great comedians and journalists all the time. Love to have you be a part of it. And remember, uh, oh, Tommy Chong. We had Tommy Chong on on my show for 420 day how awesome is that through may 15th you can listen to sirius xm and all their programming for free do yourself a favor do it just for the beatles channel and the spring scene channel and my channel SiriusXM progress anyway i'm john fugle saying again thank you so much uh we'll be back soon peace